Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I met this week's guest, Kathleen Kurtz, at DragonCon three years ago, and shortly after began reading her books. I fell in love with the Dorini series, and soon after invited to become a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, which I'm very happy she accepted. Catherine sold her first novel, Dorini Rising, actually her, the first trilogy, The Chronicles of the Dorini, on her first submission attempt. That's like unheard of. She completed her second two novels, Dorini Checkmate and Hi Dorini, while completing her MA in Medieval English History at UCLA and writing instructional materials for the Los Angeles Police Department. Her early work built on the popularity of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, but she soon defined and established her own subgenre of historical fantasy set in close parallels to her own medieval period and featuring magic that much resembles what some of us might call extrasensory perception. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about this. Like I said in, in the intro, I really, really enjoyed reading and listening to the Dorini series. And uh, I'm just really appreciative of Bill Foster for making that introduction to us um, at DragonCon three years ago. That was so that was so great that he did that. Now, Bill Foster has been a very important force in encouraging upcoming writers as well as supporting established ones. So he is a giant in his field. Indeed, indeed he is. And he continues to help me. I, I, just, I can call him anytime and he'll just say, whatever I can do, I'll help. He's just one of those kinds of guys. He was on our podcast uh, about, I don't know, 20 episodes ago, and it was just very informative on the history of publishing. But anyway, I've already had my chance to chat with him. Now I'm not going to waste my chance to talk with Catherine. So how did you get started as, as an author? Because it didn't seem like your journey was in that direction, at least from what you know, I read in your bio. Well, I had a, a science scholarship, so I had to major in science as an undergraduate. But I was also in the honors program at University of Miami uh, in sort of uh, history and humanities. And I did a lot of writing while I was doing that and really enjoyed writing. And I, I finished my BS in chemistry and I went to medical school for a year and decided that I would rather write about medicine than practice it. So I quit and went back to graduate school, which I, I had several courses under my belt already at that point. And um, my first science fiction convention was the uh, BayCon, the Worldcon in uh, Berkeley, California uh, in 1968, I guess it was. And at that point, I had written a novella uh, called Lords of Surrender, but it was it was the kernel of what became the Dorini universe. And I was talking to Stephen Whitfield at the convention. Some of you may recognize his name. He, he did some Star Trek material. He was a, a personal friend of Gene Roddenberry. And um, I told him about my idea 
And he said, oh, no, he said, you should, you should expand that into, into a novel. In fact, not, not just one, but a trilogy. And I said, you've got to be kidding. And he said, no, he said, Betty and Valentine are just starting uh, the Valentine adult fantasy series. And I think this would be perfect for them. And I'll, I'll uh, get in touch with Betty and tell her to expect it. And I said, you've got to be I haven't written one book and you want me to write three? And he said, no problem. Here's what you do. A couple of sample chapters for the first book and then a paragraph or so about the other two. And you know, just do it. So unlike many uh, would-be authors uh, who are overawed by what's happening, uh, I went home and I did what he told me and got the stuff ready. And then I called him and I said, okay, Steve, I've got the package ready. Now, what do I do next? And he said, send it to Betty Ballantyne. And he gave me the address and he said, and I will call her and tell her to expect it. So I screwed my courage to the sticking point and uh, sent it off. And by golly, within like two weeks, I got a letter in the mail from Ballantyne Books. And I thought, oh, shit. And it's, um, I was sure it was going to be a rejection. And I had a little penknife on my key ring because I was just getting ready to go out and do some shopping. It was a Saturday morning. And I managed to, in slitting the envelope, uh, I managed to get under the, the fold of the letter. So I cut the top third of the letter off in my enthusiasm. And son of a gun, it was not only an acceptance, but it was an offer for three books and gave me the terms. And she said, how does this sound? And I gulp. So I tried to call my family to tell them the good news. Nobody was home. Tried my mother, <laughs> tried my father, tried my sister. They were all off doing other things. So I went shopping and I was telling the, the sales clerks in uh, where I was going, you know, oh my God, because, you know, when something like that happens, you have to tell somebody. Absolutely. I, <laughs> I was in graduate school at part-time and uh, start had started working for LAPD and um, it was a Saturday and I didn't know that many people in LA and so like I said I told the sales clerks and then I settled down to the work of actually writing the books and it it was a joy the first thing I bought with my first advance was a selectric typewriter because I had done the original uh, submissions on a manual and uh, decided that, that that was a fitting use for that first advance. And by the time I finished the first book and it was ready to come out uh, in uh, summer of 1970, and at that point I was going to the Worldcon in Heidelberg, and uh, of course it, it was coming out right about then, so when I got to Heidelberg, nobody had read it yet. But at least, you know, I was a pro. And um, the the book was out there, and people started reading it, and they haven't stopped, fortunately. So I'm I feel very very honored to be you know at the beginning of that subgenre that sort of grew out of what was originally a dream, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
Indeed they do. Now, on your writing itself, like, you know, we've got this historical fantasy, but like when I read, when I read your book, it was like, you start off in the direction of epic fantasy, then it took his, uh, this turn towards uh, historical fiction, and then wound up with historical fantasy. How'd you evolve that? Because that's, that's fascinating. It's become, you read it, and you're like, it's so easy to uh, suspend any disbelief the way you're writing it, because it's just so matter-of-fact of this is what's going on. So, you know, the historical fantasy, it's like, well, this is what went down. How'd you evolve that? Well, you know, I had been trained as a historian at that point, and I had written a lot of, uh, lot of essays and term papers on, on real history. And when I got to telling my stories, at first I, I was very, very strongly influenced by Tolkien, and I thought you had to have certain things in order for it to be fantasy. And so that's where that Stenrecht crawler came from. You notice it never dis never appeared again. Mm -hmm. But stuff like that and the, the rhyming spells and so on, uh, you know, that was what fantasy was supposed to be. And as I, I put it through the sieve of my historian's training, I realized, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And after that first book, it got more and more uh, historical. And I was drawing on what I was studying in graduate school. And so it just, that's the way it evolved. And then I got interested in other things as well. You know, you've probably noticed that I have a keen interest in the Knights Templar. Absolutely. And, I was wondering how much his, actual history is involved in your books, because there's so much, that's what makes it easy to just suspend disbelief, because there's so many things like that in there. Oh, yeah. Well, the framework is the real history, and then you expand on the parts that nobody really knows for sure, and it could have been that way. Certainly, Lamas Knight was like that. I had this, this kernel of an idea about, you know, that the witches of England had stopped invasion of Britain more than once by using magic. And I, I went and I talked to people who had worked magic during World War II to stop Hitler's invasion. And of course, he never invaded. And this might have been one of the reasons that he didn't. I mean, we don't know. And it's sort of the hidden history behind the history. And that, that fascinates me. Oh, it's totally fascinating. So besides Knights Templar, any other aspects of, of history that you drew from that made this go because it's, it's obviously it's period writing it's it's a it's a very definite period of time that you've got is there anything else from that actual time period in in planet earth's history that that pulls from well of course i did llamas night and then i was asked to do some novels uh in partnership with another author and deborah turner harris became my writing partner on that and I had this idea of um, a modern-day psychic uh, magic worker uh, based partly on the uh, Tavener stories by Dion Fortune. And um, so I was able to tie that back in with Lamas Knight as a sort of a continuation of the same universe. And those adept novels we really, really, really enjoyed. And Betty Ballantyne introduced us at the Worldcon in Brighton, uh, Deborah Turner Harris. 
And um, she became the ideal writing partner. And we developed a voice that was a harmony of our two voices. And, uh, you know, poor Debbie didn't know a whole lot about that kind of magic when we started, but uh, she learned fast. Mm-hmm. And she would prose from an outline and then I would go through and I would massage it and, and expand it and polish it. And uh, so it, it was a very good working relationship. And we want to do some more books in our copious spare time, but life has intervened of late. And so uh, the one we have sort of semi-outlined is called Hunting by Gaslight. And it would be set in Victorian times and tied in with that same universe. And that that would be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, my Dorini fans are clamoring for the next Dorini. <laughs> I don't know for sure which one I'm going to do next. Maybe both at once. I don't know if my life ever settles down to a dull roar because I lost my first my father and and then after about two years then i lost my husband and then just a few months later lost my mother and so i've been having to deal with estate issues and the stuff that all of them had collected and um in the meantime you know i had to downsize i'm now in a much smaller house but i haven't sold the big one yet that's about to go on the market and there's just a lot of administrivia that has been distracting from writing. Yeah. I'm going to put going to put together an anthology of uh, stories set in the Dorini universe, some of which are written by my fans, and then I will do an original story as well. And uh, I just have to have the time to settle down and read the stories that are on the website and pick which ones I'm going to use. I've done one. Dorini anthology like that before, and it it was very successful. So, uh, Open Road is going to do that one. Okay. Yeah, you in Writers of the Future Volume Thirty Six, you wrote the short story, The Green Tower, that that was in there, and that was a, such a fun short story. So, do you have more? Which do you prefer, or is it a matter of like which is a preference, like short fiction or the long fiction? I prefer novels, but I've learned to take snippets from the uh, the universe in the novels and expand them to fill in, you know, stuff that you couldn't really do in a novel because it would have distracted from the main storyline. I think my next Dorini short story is going to be um, from the point of view of the people that have to go and find Morgan and tell him that the, uh, Brian has been killed and bring him back to young Kelson. And the next Dorini novel is almost certainly going to be The Road to Killingford. And it's, uh, we've talked about the big battle at Killingford, which takes place before the original Dorini trilogy. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I've, I've given teasers just verbally to my fans and, uh, they are champing at the bit. They want it so badly. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been, I mean, you're one of those rare people that first submission, first sale. So I wouldn't want to set somebody else up to compare them to yourself, you know, on, on how mm-hmm. to get started. But obviously, this is the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. So it's, it's, 
bent on trying to provide tips and advice and some hard word, some hard won advice uh, to the aspiring writer or artist. So, as a writer, then that you able to, you know, you went from zero to a hundred in in nothing flat. So, I want to make sure that we address the point of like, okay, so what was that learning curve that you had? Because a writer becomes a writer by writing. So yeah. So what was that curve for you? Well, it it was a fairly seamless transition because I had been writing for some years at the point where I finally decided to um, do the submission and see if I could actually make it work. I, In the beginning, it never crossed my mind that I would actually get to the point where I could make a living just on my writing. But of course, that was the great dream in the back of any aspiring author's mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, the publishing industry is so different now from what it was 50 years ago that in a way I don't feel qualified to advise uh, aspiring authors uh, on the process of of getting bought. But I can certainly advise that the best way to hone your skills as a writer is to write and to read and to write some more and be prepared to throw out half of what you write or more and um, be aware of what's going on around you. You get ideas. Yeah, people watching is, is a great pastime and very, very useful. And beyond that, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, that's fine. I've got other questions that will definitely pull out things, I think, which will be of assistance to the, uh, to the audience that's listening. So, you know, you, you said you'd be prepared to throw away a bunch of stuff. So, because we've got, you know, I've heard sometimes people say, well, I've, I've submitted to the contest and I wasn't even a finalist, so I'm not, I don't have it, you know. And so we've had some people that have entered, you know, over 40 times before finally winning. Or a lot of times uh, someone keeps on entering the contest and they will pro out, you know, they'll do like what you did, they'll sell a book. And at that point, they're no longer qualified for the contest. But um, how much of the Dorini did you actually, how much of, of what you write stayed in the books and how much of it was just scuttled? Well, keep in mind that in those days, it was all done on a typewriter and little slips of paper and writing around in the margins of hard copy and um you tend to to save the bits that you don't end up using. And so I have a lot of stuff in my files that that was good, but not for that point in what I was writing. And so occasionally I go back through some of that stuff. So nothing that you write is ever totally lost. Writing on a computer is a little different because you, when you edit on the fly on the computer, as it were, stuff does go away. And my cat is uh, joining in on the discussion here. Yes, I can hear um, your cat, yes. That's uh, Gus. He's a big orange and white cat, and he's the most talkative cat I have ever had. Okay, well, he's but, definitely there with you. Yeah. I tend to... Oh, I, I write on the computer now. I, I started learning how to, to word process when I was doing the final draft of Lama Snipe, but I did the first three books just for the first six books on uh, a typewriter and having to retype the whole manuscript at the end after you've done all your 
your hand editing and retyping chapters and doing more hand editing and so on. And I, I started word processing when I was doing the final typed copy of Lama's Night because I figured, well, you know, I don't have to think as much about what I'm writing. It's a, a fairly mechanical process of, of retyping it. And so I'll, I'll use this for a double purpose. And by the time I had finished typing the, uh, the final draft of Lama's Night into the computer, which was an Apple IIe with two external floppy drives, the big six inch floppy <laughs> disk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, by the time I finished that though, I was able to start composing directly on the computer at the start of the next Durini novel. And I still, I would do a couple chapters and then I would print out hard copy and then play with it, do hand editing and, uh, you know, do another retype when it got too involved to, to read around all the corners. Uh, but at the end, it meant that you didn't have to do a final retype yeah. and, you know, rah, hoorah, <laughs> that was one of the greatest uh, things about transitioning to uh, word processing. That's very and so I, I, I do have uh, printouts with, with writing between the lines uh, for earlier versions of manuscripts uh, for a lot of what I have done in subsequent years. But, yeah. uh, and sometimes if there's a really piece of deathless prose that you don't want to lose, you put it aside in another file and hopefully recycle it somewhere else. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I understand on that. Now, the magic in the Durini series, and magic is, is a very definite subject that, that authors will get into, the do's and don'ts on, on magic, um, that it's, it seems like a really easy way to solve problems, just have magic and you know snap your fingers and boom, there you go. But yours isn't like that, so there's a very definite set of rules and regulations concerning the Durini magic and and how it works and how it's continued to it's not as strong as it was before in earlier generations but somehow somebody gets it stronger how do you work out your magic rules well it was partly based on contemporary as in right now with us uh ceremonial magic and partly on ESP and partly how I thought magic should work, even if it didn't really work that way, or I couldn't figure out how to make it work that way. But the main thing I've always kept in the back of my mind is that the magic should never be a deus ex machina. You can't just say, oh, um, I'm going to invent a spell to get the main character out of this predicament. Uh, you have to come up with something that at least within the logic of the universe you're working in does at least sort of make sense. And of course you can keep the, the element of, of mystery that there's stuff that we don't understand that doesn't make it any less real. And um, I've left it deliberately vague as to what kind of power my characters tap into when they do magic. 
because I don't want to get into theological uh, digging and waiting. And apparently I have, uh, have done an okay job on that because I have devoted readers who are pretty conservative, religiously speaking, and they don't have a problem with what I've been doing in the books. And in fact, a lot of what I have written has led a lot of my readers to re-examine their childhood faith and maybe come to a, a modern interaction with the divine that has meaning for them, which perhaps didn't before. Well, that's, that's definitely good. And on your magic, because you have some of the magic like you've like Brandon Sanderson with his, you know, with his magic. That's a very involved magic universe. And um, Witch World series is a very definite magic. And I, I totally fell in love with, with um, the Witch World series. That was one of the first things I was reading fantasy-wise as a, as a youngin. But on, on your, on your um, magic, it is there. It's, it's, I don't know if plausible is the right word, but it's, it, like it makes sense as it's, it accounts for things that did happen, you know, in history. And so it, it's, it's not one of those things you just immediately go like, oh, that's just, you know, that's obviously just a fantasy. So um, it's just interesting how you plugged into that. So what kind of research did you do that came up with that type of a fantasy, which makes sense, that doesn't step on feet of more conservatives? and yet leaves that door open for, like you said, the ESP or these people having that, that extra ability to, to do something. Yeah, well, you know, there, there's enough quasi-evidence in the, the world of psychic phenomena that for some people, things happen that they can't necessarily explain, but it is real, not necessarily scientifically quantifiable, but something is happening. And so that's your, your fallback explanation, if you will, to, to make the magic plausible in this alternate universe. And of course, by saying that it's, it's an alternate universe, you can get away with an awful lot. It's just like we can examine modern sociological phenomena, but if you couch it in the framework of fantasy, people who in the real world would be totally against uh, examining those ideas can suspend disbelief and at least consider it. And sometimes, you know, as I've said many times, I don't uh, set out to change minds just to open them. Which is a good philosophy. If there's anything you're trying to communicate with your books besides Here's a, a great story. What would that be? Uh, that being different is not necessarily a bad thing. And it, it doesn't really cost most people anything to allow other people to be different. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, you know, tolerance. Certainly in the back of my mind, um, the Dorini have been sort of not exactly a surrogate for Jewish persecution, but uh, 
there certainly are similarities. And uh, the Jews, like the Dorini, have been very successful. They tend to be intellectually plugged in and competent at what they do. And people will always resent people that can do that. And of course, with the Dorini, they've got magic. So that makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm just curious, since now part of your your life, current life's journey, um, you spent, what, 20 years in Ireland? Yes, How much 21. Did that, 21 years. So how much did that affect you? Because Ireland is a very, to me, it's very beautiful. I, I, I learned various bits about it from spending so much time with Anne McCaffrey talking about it. Did that influence you at all, just with the various mysticism and, and the various, that versus the, um, you know, the, the Celtic and then the... Um, and then the, uh, the Catholic Church, you know, they're all very strong in, in that area there. Any, any effect that that had on you? Well, you learn very quickly to uh, not be too vocal in, in your opinions uh, on religious matters because it is primarily a Roman Catholic country. Mm -hmm. And if you're not Roman, uh, even if you're a fairly high church Christian of some other flavor, um, they tolerate you, but they, you're never really one of them. Right. But the certainly the the lore was very fascinating, and just living in in that milieu for the 21 years. And of course, Anne McCaffrey was right down the road, and so I used to stop in and have tea with her every couple of months. And uh, ride her horses. But, Never rode her horses, but did visit them. And we used to swim in her pool. And um, when she was having increasing health issues toward the end of her life, I would make a point to stop down there just to lift her spirits and encourage her to get back to her writing, which she did to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And of course, she passed the baton to her daughter and to her son. And they have continued in the. Uh, the dragon riders uh, milieu, but my my big Irish adventure was the uh, St. Patrick's Gargoyle project, and I I got to really someone described that book to me as Catherine at play, and <laughs> um, I I had a I had a good time writing it. Scott and I would drive around Dublin uh, in the evening with the sunroof open on my little Honda. And looking for gargoyles, and uh, I was able to tie it in with the Templars again. Those Templars, the pesky Templars, keep showing up mm -hmm. all over the place in so much of what I have written. And um, I think it came out to be a pretty good story, and it, it has done well. There's been some talk, although I don't have Scott to uh, pursue the uh, the project, but there was talk off and on several times about doing a film of it. And I think that would have been fun. I don't yeah. know if it will ever happen now, but uh, you never know. Absolutely. And you lived in a, a castle? Well, it was a cross between Castle Dracula and Toad Hall. <laughs> uh, it was a Gothic revival house that looked a whole lot like a castle, and it had at least two resident ghosts. And uh, history up the wazoo, and uh, 
The man who built it was an artist, a member of the Hibernian Academy. And I have a painting of his that we bought when we were living there. And we believe it was his daughter. Um, and she's, she's out there in my living room now waiting to get hung on the wall because that's where art belongs. I haven't done any, any hanging of art yet in this new house, but uh, I've got friends who are framers and art conservators, and I'm trying to get them to come over and, and help me figure out where to put everything. Wow. I mean, that's just fascinating because it's, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just every part of a person's life can be used as grist for your typewriting mill and come with different Absolutely. story ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. So on the, um, now you've been a, a judge now for Rise of the Future for three years. What was it originally? I mean, I know our conversations that we had, but just so the listeners can can know well, what about Writers of the Future? Because that was a contest that was created by Owen Hubbard in 1983, and now we're, we're actually doing the contest for volume for the 38th year. But what about it intrigued you or, or that you found um, something that you wanted to be able to support? Well, I've always tried to encourage up-and-coming writers, and... Uh, I've been regularly doing a Sunday evening chat with fans on uh, my website, which is ramuscastle.com. And ordinarily, we chat at 7 unless something comes up. But on the first Sunday of the month, we've been doing Zoom sessions. And we start those at 4 because we do have some fans uh, in the UK. and it would get awfully late if we didn't start uh, until seven. So we moved it up on the Zoom Sundays and uh, we talk about the books and we talk about other things that they're interested in and characters and they ask questions. And uh, there's a lot, lot of talk about cats because most of us are cat fans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um there are some costumers and it's just, it's a, a lovely group of people. And I have been chatting on Sunday nights. Oh, started when I was still in Ireland. So it's been going for a while, probably close to 15 years. Yeah. So with the, um, just uh, quickly return back then to this writers of the future. Now you've been judging. And so when you get the stories, the quarter, and then you also have the, the grand prize judging, Anything that you've noticed about the stories? Because it's, it's the only contest that exists out there, which is strictly for amateur, that they then, you know, there's no pre-qualification. You have to be this or that. It's just strictly, you know, speculative fiction and amateur. But anything that fits in it is not like, okay, this book is on this type of story. It's just it's all across the boards. Any comments about that? Well, I have found it very interesting, the 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 broad scope of the kinds of stories that these young aspiring writers are coming up with. And uh, some of them, well, they're, they're all very competent by the time they get to me, mm -hmm. but um, some of them really, they, they show serious promise and I'm impressed. I don't have time to, 
keep up with the genre of much anymore, uh, not science fiction and uh, not fantasy that much either because my own life has, has intervened so much in the last couple of years. But I enjoy getting that taste of what's out there and what young people are finding of interest to write speculative fiction about. Right. And one thing that's interesting, too, you, you mentioned young people, because all you ever see is a story and a number. You have no idea who it is. That's true. I have no idea, no way of knowing how old they actually are, but they're young in experience. Yeah, least. there we go. Okay, give a qualify like that, because we've had winners up into their mid-60s. You know, oh, very good. Yeah, they're just, they're looking for, you know, they've always wanted to be a writer. They've gone through their, uh-huh. they've gone through their career, they're at retirement age, and it's, I'm going to do it. I've had, we had one person several years ago who was a medical doctor. He tried becoming a writer, couldn't make it, so he went to med school instead, became a doctor, and he was... I could tell he was a doctor from the story that he won with because it was, you could tell, you can tell doctors in the stories they write because they've got things that only a doctor would know when they, when they put it in their stories. Um, yeah. Right now I'm reading the Alex Cross books by James Patterson. Mm-hmm. And I had read years ago and it was good, but I never followed up on it. And a friend of mine is a serious uh, Patterson fan, and so she brought me books. I think I've read six or seven of them now in a row. And he's an incredibly talented writer, and uh, I'm enjoying it very much. And I'm enjoying dissecting how he does what he does. And uh, yeah, I, I may have have pulled a couple of. Uh, approaches out of what he's been writing that I might see if I can adapt to what I do. That's good. And that actually brings up another question here. You said a, a, a writer has to read. And so you're reading, but you're not reading just as a spectator. You're reading actually as a writer who's trying to basically expand your own bullpen of how to tell a good story. So how does another author do something? How do they introduce a character? How do they put in the right amount of, of suspense, tenseness? Is it a short, you know, like short sentences, several in a row picks up the speed of a story, long sentences slow it down, different ways to be able to control storytelling. Is that what you do when you, when you read other stories? Uh, somewhat. And certainly when I was starting out, I can remember specifically dissecting scenes from Dune. Uh, Dune was a very important uh, reading experience for me when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way he would handle meetings of of councils and and so on, and having all the, the characters interact, I took a lot of pointers from that in learning how to uh, manage Kelson's great council and uh, you know, it's all grist for the mill. Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes a difference, and because because writers, it's it's a it's not like an easy job being a writer, being an author. It's it's a lot of work. It's a different kind of work than blue collar or or even just office white collar work. It's a whole different kind. But you've got to be dedicated to it, and there's an actual technology to being able to succeed as an author. Oh yes. So then in terms of um, 
then just to finish up on the Rise of Future contest, anything that, you know, because I'm always encouraging people to be able to enter that, enter the contest because it's free to enter. And it's, it is that thing to, it levels the playing field because all you ever see then as a judge is the story and the numbers. So you have no idea. So any of your own, even if you had prejudices on any type of a, of a person, it wouldn't come into play because all you have is the story and the merit of the story alone. Can you just right. talk about that a bit, like the value of that? Because it doesn't exist out there. Well, I, I am of two minds about that. For a contest, I think it's, uh, it's probably a good way to do it because it really does level the playing field. When I'm reading stories that my fans have written, usually I know who they are. Um, and quite often knowing a little about their background helps me uh, understand how and what they're doing in their stories. But I've, I've read some fan stories that are so good that I wish I had written them. They, just, <laughs> they are definitely in the, uh, in the Dorini universe. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then, so then in terms of, of advice for an aspiring writer, what would you, what would you have to say to them? Like, I mean, obviously you do your, your, your um, Zooms that you do every, every Sunday at the first Sunday of the month. What is your, what type of advice or what are the common questions that come up that you, you routinely have to answer that we can address here? And then the other, anybody else that's listening to this can actually get that too. Well, on the subject of research, a lot of would-be authors do a whole, whole bunch of research. And uh, then when they settle down to start writing, instead of just keeping the flavor of the research, they, they somehow feel compelled to do these info dumps. And, you know, quite often what, what you want to do on information you don't want to know how to build the clock. You just want to know what time it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to do these big info dumps just to show off all the cool stuff that you found, well, that doesn't serve the story necessarily. Uh, there are me mechanisms for instructing by the way characters interact, but uh, for the most part, you know, you're got, not going to use the vast majority of what you turn up in your research. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, because nobody's interested in saying, oh, yeah, this guy knows a lot about this. They just want to get get the flavor of it. And if you actually really understand it, you can really communicate it with, with a terseness that really communicates that whatever it is. So yeah. that, that's a good point. Any of the points that get routinely asked. I'm, I'm, this is the Catherine Kurtz Dragon Con Panel 101 that we're doing here. <laughs> well, you know, when they ask me, you know, how I I got into it, you know, the way I got into it do doesn't apply anymore because you couldn't do the same thing today that I did 50 years ago. Um, like I said earlier, it's it's a totally different market and marketing process and the bottom line is that you have to write stuff that people want to read, which means that you probably should be writing what you enjoy reading. And I think most of the time, 
young authors, you know, they they do keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. But also one of the pitfalls, a lot of them get involved in writers groups and they they have their stories dissected and so on by writers groups, but I've I've never interacted with writers groups as such when I was starting out because that can really undermine your confidence and uh, the way your your peers in that group are interpreting what you're doing isn't necessarily I mean, that's that's their biases but they're there because they want to learn also and so they're not necessarily experts. For sure. And it's interesting because I noticed on your uh, reunwithcastle.com, on your, in your website, you've got this thing in the upper right-hand corner, community conduct, be excellent to each other, exclaim. And I think, yes. that, I think that's really important. That's basically what we have also in the writersoffuture.com website. We have our policy, and we've only had to um, remove one person before um, from the website from being rude, but it's just... There's no need to be rude. There's no re- need to um, to act anything other than civil with your fellow aspiring writers or writers. Oh yeah, I've never had to kick anybody out of my uh, my sessions, and I don't know if I just overawe them or uh, I just attract people who are uh, considerate and uh, civil. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's good that you do because it's, I mean, your your whole universe that you've created there, I mean, you definitely have the full spectrum of, of characters, that's for sure. You've got some good nasty folks and you've got some really good righteous people and you've got a lot of everything in between. Oh, so, yeah. Villains are fun to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what is your favorite character to write in the Durini series? Oh, gosh. That's like asking a parent who's their favorite child. <laughs> um, okay, so who's your favorite child? Uh, well, in the Dorini universe, I'm I'm fond in in the Camber sub universe. Uh, I very much enjoyed writing Camber uh, in the in Kelson's time period. Probably Duncan. Duncan was way Although, cool. Yeah, Alaric is a, a close contender, though. I like both of them. And, yeah, some of those nasty clergy, I really enjoyed writing them, too. <laughs> Just to get out of your system? Yeah. No, some of those clergy are, are seriously nasty. Yeah. There's good ones and there's bad ones, just like in the real world. Yep. And my readers often grumble that... Uh, I kill off major characters. Well, sometimes I do, yeah. But in the real world, good people sometimes die. Um, I had a friend killed about six weeks ago now. She was on her way home uh, talking to one of her grown sons on the phone, and a car driven by a young man who was drunk who had already hit two cars and was fleeing that hit and run, uh, slammed into her. She was killed instantly. Wow. And uh, he's sitting in jail. But uh, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Yeah. 
I'm sorry to hear that, but yeah, that your your story has the whole your stories have the full spectrum of of personalities. That's for sure. So, anything else that people ask you about um, most frequently on on your um, either the panels, like I said, or on your um, on your Zoom sessions? Oh, sometimes they'll ask about uh, how and why I uh, I wound up a a storyline the way I did, or they they've found a loose end that they want to know more about. And that to me is fodder for a short story to take incidents like that and expand them a bit, but in a short story um, context, because as I said before, some things that come up when you're doing a novel just don't fit in the novel. They would interrupt the flow of the action, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're good ideas and they're interesting ideas and they can flesh out a short story very nicely. That's good. Now, one thing I'm curious about is the subject of republishing. So you've come out with your books. You did it with, uh, I guess, Valentine Books. Is that, is that the main publishing house that you've worked with? That that was originally, and then that was bought by Ace. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in 50 years, as I've said, the publishing industry has changed a lot. And so... Uh, Ace and uh, Open Road are my main publishers right now, and uh, Ace is a successor to uh, Valentine, and uh, there was another one in there somewhere, <laughs> Random right. House. Yeah. So on your earlier books that you wrote, then, do, does Ace keep them all in print, or do you have to work out other lines to be able to keep your earlier works in print? Uh, Ace was keeping them in print. I think now Open Road is keeping them in print. Everything is pretty much available still. And of course, there are um, audiobooks and there are electronic editions of the books. And, you know, it's, it's all out there. Technology has, has served writers very well in most respects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because some authors... You know, they've got their earlier their earlier books go out of print, so they have to work out other lines to get them reprinted, and that's how, like, Kevin Anderson set up Wordfire Press to be able to handle earlier out-of-print books from big-name authors that just they, they weren't carried anymore from the, from the publishing houses. Sometimes the authors were, have deceased, and it's the estate that's dealing with it. But I was just curious. Yeah, my, if, my agent uh, does a lot of that stuff, and... He's been in the business long enough that he has seen the evolution and he knows what needs to be done. And so... uh, He does it. He does it, yeah. Have you had much um, control at all in the audiobooks of like deciding who's the the voice for your your, uh, stories? No, but I haven't really paid that much attention either. I mean, uh, my fans let me know if there's somebody that they really like or that they don't care for, but I don't really have much input on that. It's like I have no, well, I have more input than I used to on cover art, but um, there <laughs> there was one remarkably bad uh, Dorini cover that uh, was a obviously a cut and paste and photoshopped thing. And it was horrible, <laughs> but I hadn't gotten to see it ahead of time. Later ones, uh, 
I have liked the work of a particular artist and been able to give that feedback to my publishers. And so I, I've had repeats on, on some artists. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you um, enjoy or have, has, have, has the convention scene ever big, been a big part of your publishing drill as, a, as an author to, to meet fans like by attending conventions, doing panels or being at a booth or not, doing signings? I I enjoy going to conventions. Uh, haven't been to one for a while now, as hardly anybody has. Right. But um, and I don't know if it will ever be the way it was. I used to go to you know three or four conventions a year, and I enjoyed them. Did it make much difference for you on the sales of your books, or support of your say. fans? Hard to say, but my my uh, approach from very early on was that uh, if they don't pay my expenses, I won't go. Right. Because that's taking time out of my life when I could be writing. And, uh, you know, so one has to keep that kind of thing in mind. Yeah, once you're established as a writer, that's that's an important thing to do is to be able to keep your schedule in. And I run into that when the judges came out here for the Writers of Future Awards event. Yeah. We, we always make sure they always have their time slot allotted where they can continue continue the writing or a lot of them will, will set up their meetings also with with uh, movie and, and TV people too they just they combine right. a lot of things when they come out here for the writers of the future uh, award ceremony yeah all right so as we get close to wrapping up here for somebody to actually find you what's the best place to um, for them to go Google me Amazon. Open Road, Ace, you know, you, you put me into a search engine, though, and I come up in a lot of places, which is good. Yeah, it is very good. And then what would you recommend as um, a first book to read of yours? I, I usually say if, if you're interested in the historical fantasy genre, start with the first book, Dorini Rising, and read them in the order I wrote them not in the order that they came uh that they fall in the chronology uh if they're interested more in modern history Lamas Knight is a World War II thriller the two Templar novels are uh Scottish Independence Wars for Independence St. Patrick's Gargoyle is contemporary urban fantasy Two Crowns for America set during the War for Independence and that's got a strong masonic flavor to it because Freemasons were very actively involved in the birth of this nation. A lot just depends on the the primary interests of the the reader. I even did a science fiction on Legacy of Lair. So if if one is more slanted towards science fiction, uh, that's a good one to start with. You got something for everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been it's been great having this interview with you. I very much appreciate your taking the time for this. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, I highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who are judges, including Katherine Kurtz, have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. 
They can be found at writersofthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Catherine. You're very welcome.